Welcome to The Path and the Practice, a podcast dedicated to sharing the professional origin stories of the attorneys at Foley and Lardner LLP, a full-service law firm with over 1,000 lawyers across the U.S. and abroad. I'm your host, Alexis Robertson, Director of Diversity and Inclusion at Foley. In each episode of this podcast, you'll hear me in conversation with a different Foley attorney. You'll learn about each guest's unique background, path to law school, and path to Foley and Lardner. Essentially, you'll hear the stories you won't find on their professional bios. And of course, you'll learn a bit about their practice. Now, let's get to the episode. This episode features a conversation with Dan Sharp. Dan is Manager of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion here at Foley and Lardner and sits in the firm's Washington, D.C. office. And you can probably already tell this is a unique episode of The Path and the Practice because Dan is not a current practicing attorney. He remains a licensed attorney, but he's actually a member of my team. So with Dan joining the firm about a month ago, I decided I wanted to get him on the show so that everyone at Foley and Lardner can get a better sense of Dan, but also so that Dan can share some of his advice with law students aspiring attorneys, and those early in their legal career. So we start with Dan reflecting on his path, which includes growing up in the suburbs of Philadelphia, attending Princeton University for undergrad, spending a couple years working as a patent examiner at the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office, and then attending the University of Virginia School of Law, after which he spent a decade practicing as an IP lawyer. I can't help but mine the various pearls of wisdom that Dan gives along the way. So you'll find we actually spend a lot more time on his experience in college and in law school and less time on his practice because, of course, Dan is not practicing anymore. So if you'd like to hear the details of an IP litigator or IP prosecutor, I encourage you to listen to some of the earlier episodes of this show. But what I most appreciate about this discussion with Dan is you can see the various places where seeds were planted that would lead to him subsequently transitioning into a full-time diversity and inclusion professional here at Foley and Lardner. It was an absolute pleasure to have him on the show. I'm so glad he was game to do this just a month into being at Foley. And also, really pay attention to the end of the show. We go a little bit long because we are day-to-day colleagues and have a lot to talk about. But the advice he gives, I think, is unique and something we have not touched on before on The Path and the Practice. And one bit of advice at the end is that difference between a job and a career. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Dan Sharp. Dan, welcome to the podcast. A little bit different because as I know I've said in the intro, you are now a member of the diversity and inclusion team and we're going to talk about that. But first, we're going to walk through your life. But actually, let's start by you giving just a short introduction. Thanks for having me on. I'm Dan. I just joined Foley about a month ago. I had been practicing law for 10 years before that and really just excited to be here. Everyone's been great so far. We've got some things coming up, so. Some of which maybe we'll talk about, but this is also one of those things where at the end of the day, I'm like, yes, this is the podcast. Uh, This belongs to Foley and Lardner LLP, but this is also my podcast. So (laughs) when you joined the firm, I think within the first couple of days, I was just like, Dan, I have to get you on the podcast because we're going to talk about your journey to law, your practice, and then we will talk a little bit about your transition to joining the DEI team. But Let's start somewhat at the beginning for you. And these are things I don't even know the answer to, even though we've only worked together for not even six weeks yet. I'm, I feel like I should know everything about you and I don't. So anyway, let's start with where are you from? Where did you grow up? So I'm from the Philadelphia area. I grew up in South Jersey uh, in the suburbs, Camden County. So went to public school 
in Camden County. Well, actually, I'm going to stop you there because I want a snippet. We're going to talk about school for sure. But give me that snippet of, you know, little Dan Sharp and I don't know, late elementary school, middle school, either what's life like for you or like, what are you into? Like that, what type of kid were you? Just a nerd. Expand on that. What does that mean? I just used to read a lot more and I played sports, but like fairly poorly just by sheer effort. <laughs> I just grit. I'd grit my way through through school sports. Well, no, I, I love sports and I love playing sports. And I was so unathletic as a child that my sports playing abilities were basically learning how to do very niche things like well. So like I was a catcher in baseball and I used to like really, really learn the technical aspects of catching. And that was how I was able to like play a little bit because I was very is this, slow. This is middle schoolish, elementary this school. This was this was like yeah, elementary school going into middle school. I think middle school is when I started like catching full time. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. I also feel like I feel like in elementary school now I'm a very unathletic person. Continue to be that way, but I was especially that way as a little kid. But I do think in elementary school, the things are a little bit more even, but then eventually people who are just good at stuff start to pull ahead. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Come. And that's how you hung on was knowing the I was listen, ins and outs. Pre, pre, in elementary school, I was great. In elementary <laughs> it was school, so good. I was Killed great. Third grade, then, I was winning. And then, yeah, like, you know, I just didn't grow the height that I needed to stay on the basketball team. But I still played sports. It was just very much the grit of my teeth, just practicing things to the point where I could do things and knew how to do things that other people weren't worried about yet because Mm. they were like, oh, I'm fast and tall and whatever. And I was like, okay, well, I know how to do this tricky pass in basketball or handle the ball like this or, you know, block pitches in the dirt in baseball, stuff like that. So you're reading books, but reading you're, books, you're play, being you play, a nerd. Yeah. What sort of books? I'm trying to, because I'm trying, I don't feel a lot of nerd coming from you at the moment. Although actually this, like, I'm going to learn the the weird ins and outs of sports is kind of nerdy. Yeah. Like, I'm going to learn the tricks. It was just, I had to, I had to figure something out because I didn't have the physical advantages. Yeah. But that's smart. That's, you're smart. I get it. <laughs> Reading wise, I was like a, I was like a voracious reader when I was a kid. And the thing that my mom always likes to remind me is she used to, come in at night and find me sort of sneak reading under the blanket with a flashlight. And so I would wake up and the flashlight and the book would be on the, you know, dresser next to my bed because I would always fall asleep reading books by the flashlight because I thought for some reason the flashlight was how I was going to not get caught or something. (laughs) That's true. And so, yeah, so I used to read a lot of, a lot of things. I don't really, I stopped reading fiction for the most part, like in high school. But before Mm -hmm. that, I had been reading a lot of like a lot of classics, a lot of like. Yeah. And then tell me, you mentioned your mom. Did you have any siblings? Uh, Yeah. So I have a younger brother. I have a younger brother. Uh, He's four years younger. Yeah. Four years younger. But he's the one that got all the height and athleticism. So I've seen some actually things on TikTok that are like, if you can't tell who's older or younger between siblings, the older one's the shorter one. Yeah, that's probably the case. (laughs) But yeah, so I'm, I have a younger brother, but it was just the four of us. Okay. So now tell me about school. You mentioned you go to public school and in particular, take me to high school. Yeah. I don't know. Are you still into sports? What's life like then? And then let's start talking that transition to thinking about college. Sure. So in high school, I would say hobby wise, my main hobby as I got later into high school was like cars. 
like I said, in high school, the nerd really came out. I was in the marching band and I was on the robotics team. What instrument and band? Uh, I played the baritone sax. Okay. And it's, it's kind of funny. I think about this sometimes even now. Music was such a big part of my life for so long, and I just haven't played since, since high school. I played from fourth grade through high school, and in high school even, I played in concert band, jazz band, marching band. So like some days in the fall, I would be playing the saxophone for four hours a day hmm. and just stopped cold and just kind of let it let it slide. Well, like you went to college and it was done. Is that is that how it I, yeah, worked? Yeah, just did not follow through. I wasn't good. Much like so much I like can, sports, I wasn't good. I can I can relate to this because so I took piano lessons from the ages of eight to eighteen. So that's a decade of piano lessons, and I could play stuff that sounded impressive by the time I was a senior in high school. But then when I went to college, that was done. Like yeah. I never really touched a piano. And then maybe seven years ago, I got a piano in my home and I actually but it started with a little keyboard and I basically had to relearn how to play like it's deep in your mind somewhere but see the thing with piano is that like if you could play piano and you're in college there there are just there are pianos pianos around around, that's true you can just hop on and and play around the problem with the baritone saxophone in particular is that it is huge it is loud and there is no way to practice it or play it without disturbing everyone so right and you're not just high go school, pick up a baritone sax like right. just on the street like, so my high school <laughs> actually had one of the better music programs in the state we had just multiple concert bands jazz bands choirs music theory classes whatever but we also had these soundproof practice rooms which mm-hmm. was very key but once i lost access to the soundproof practice room it suddenly became and i wasn't in my house just bothering my parents it became more difficult things. anyway. So yeah, and you also mentioned cars. I just when you say cars, like I liked learning about supercars, working on cars, working on cars. Um, I used to install car stereo systems uh, for my friends in high school. I used to modify cars. It was a huge, huge thing. And if you want to talk about sort of transitioning to college, I went to college thinking that I was going to be a mechanical engineer, and I wanted to be an automotive engineer, and I wanted to work at a car company. And okay. I wanted to do the stuff that I was doing. So I see it all coming. I see that all coming together. But so tell yeah. me, college. How did you navigate that process, and where did you go? So it's actually interesting. I I wish I had the the career services or not career services. The uh, guidance counselors that we had were public school guidance counselors. They kind of didn't know a whole lot. So you go in and you, and they give you your list of like they look at your your grades and stuff. And they give you your list of like, you should apply to these places. And I wish I still had it because they told me, oh, you know, you could really, you could maybe go, you could maybe be in the Penn State Honors Program. You know, Drexel has a really good engineering program. Obviously, Rutgers is a good option for you, whatever. And like, all of that's great. And those are great schools. But I knew from my peers that that was like, they were not being told that. They, they were, were being, being told, told Harvard was an option. The they IVs. were being told whatever. Yes. And so I had a little chip on my shoulder there. So I actually applied to mostly Ivy League schools. I applied to MIT, Harvard, Columbia, Cornell, Penn, Princeton. And then I applied to Penn State and Rutgers as like a backup plan. Yep. And I got into all of them. 
Wow. So, all, all of them. That's yeah, amazing. Yeah. I didn't get Wait, rejected I, from a school till law school. That's amazing. That's actually, that's, that's, that's great. I, although I do want to ask why, why do you think, because there may be reasons that are not obvious to listeners. Why do you think that you are getting some advice compared to other different advice than other people? Oh, I think there's two things. I think one, they were just not super equipped for that. And two, I was like near the top of my class, but not the top of my class. But yeah, I just had other, I just had other things, but I do think that there was some, some amount of like racial element. This was a, this was an older white woman counseling yeah. a young black kid with cornrows as to where to go to college. And was like, kind of had to be talked into me applying to Cornell. And so, yeah, that was, that's actually one of the things that's really interesting to me because had I been a couple years older and the internet wasn't, the internet was barely available. So I had just a little bit of access to information about what maybe my actual sort of numbers would, would make me a candidate for. But if it were a couple years before that, and all I had to go off of was what this person told me, mm-hmm. this person definitely would have talked me out of, you know, getting, cause like, it's a big process back then, at least you had to apply for fee waivers because the applications cost 50 or $60 that we didn't yep. have. And now they're more. Now they're probably 80 to 100, something like yeah, that. Yeah, so I just, yeah. yeah. So I just got a bunch of fee waivers and applied to a bunch of bunch of REACH schools. It's so important. I'm, and you're right. Things are different now because there is so much information available. But still, the role that person can play, and the same thing, we'll, we'll probably touch on it when we talk about your law school experience, but the advice from guidance counselors or career services when you don't have any other context yeah. can be viewed as that, well, that's what I should do. This person's an expert. And, you know, it translates or it's related to our now day jobs of being diversity and inclusion professionals. But sometimes you have to check for the bias and the advice you're giving. And I end up because I give advice all the time to people. I could be like, it's great. They said that to you. I understand maybe why, but you can still do other things. It's not like a yeah. pronouncement. I definitely don't think there was any ill intent behind it. Mm-hmm. I think that because I had dealt with these people in other contexts and they were really helpful. So I don't think it was that. I think they just were kind of, you go to yeah. public school, you go to public school in Camden County. Like they have some resources. They don't have some. My parents were both the first in their families to go to college at all. And they went to Rutgers Camden. So, you know, it was, it was not a lot, not a lot of institutional knowledge, both in the school or in the family to really help with the college process. But well, luckily, but you fi- you I was a complete nerd and I read as much as I could get my hands on. <laughs> I read everything. I figured you it out. You go to Barnes I... & Noble and you go That's to Borders right. and you sit in the back and you take all of the, you know, all the books that they have on college admissions and you just sit there and you read them. I did the same thing. I would have done the same thing. What maybe like two years before you did. Same thing. I was also at Borders at Barnes and Noble. Yeah, 100%. And, all, and it was the, all the SAT, ACT prep books. It was learning how to apply to college. And then I would tell uh. my parents, I would tell my parents what I needed to do. And then they would like do whatever I asked them to. So the funny thing about the SAT is that, I don't know if you remember this, but there was a program where you could take the SAT as like a seventh grader. And it was kind of do remember this. It was like national national merit or something. But it was in like eighth. For me, I think it was. Yeah, it was like in that range. It was like seventh or eighth grade. And you were able to take the SAT and they used it for like some scholarship program or something. Right. And the thing that happened is most a lot of people did it then. A lot of my classmates, like we all took the SAT and like I did pretty well. 
on the SAT in eighth grade or whatever. And, and mind you, it's zero prep at that. Because I remember, I actually remember doing, you just went and took it. Like it wasn't like you studied for it. Like you just went and took so it. So this is the story about how I never did any SAT prep. I took the test in like seventh or eighth grade for this program. And then the thing is, is that every year you could still take it. There maybe wasn't a point to taking it, but like they still sent you the materials every year after that year. And so I took the SAT every year. <laughs> so by the time it starts to really count, you're like, I've done this a million times. This I took the funny. SAT. Basically, it's like I took the this SAT. Is my fourth time taking. I took the SAT in in middle school, and like I can't remember all the details, but it was I got like a twelve something. I took yep. it freshman year and got like fourteen something. And so by the time I was taking it for real, I was getting like it's fine fifteen eighty and and whatever. So- I don't know if this still exists, but I almost feel like this is an interesting life hack where it's like, listen up, kids, just go ahead and take the SAT every year starting in seventh grade. By the time you hit junior year of high school, you'll be good. The thing is, is like, <laughs> I didn't, and, and this actually is another pattern for me because the LSAT was kind of similar. I wouldn't recommend it as a strategy. No, I agree. I, agree. I didn't really know what I was doing. I was just like nerding out of, over the fact that there were like, it was a puzzle. It was game to play. It was mm-hmm. a thing. I didn't actually understand sort of the the strat the optimal strategy for how to like solve certain things. I was just kind of brute forcing you it. Just, you just did a lot. Yeah. Well, okay. And let me take you back. So you just listed all of these mostly Ivy League colleges that you'd applied to, got into all of them. I can't remember if you said where you went. You might have. But now tell me which school did you select? A little bit about the why, and then what was your experience like in college? So. The funny thing is, is that the only schools that I could have plausibly afforded to go to were Princeton, MIT, Harvard, and Cornell. Yeah. Is this because of their endowment or like- Yeah. So Penn Penn State was like, here's some pennies of aid, but like it was still a state school and I would have had to pay, I think like 30 grand a year. Mm -hmm. And the Ivy Leagues were free. I mean, they, they, if you don't make a lot of money, they, Princeton had recently gone to, and I think Harvard as well had gone to like no loan based financial aid. So all your financial aid was grant based. So like, I kind of didn't have much of a choice as far as, Mm -hmm. you know, I couldn't have gone to other places. So, so yeah, I, uh, I visited, I visited all of those schools. Cornell is extremely cold and windy. Boston is not my favorite never was my favorite i'm from philly boston is <laughs> boston is not 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 my city as you know yep. from conversations we've had um and so yeah so princeton it was you go there what's it like you started princeton it was a lot it was a lot i had never met people from many other states let alone um cuz my whole family is basically from philadelphia south jersey mm-hmm. My mom was born in D.C., but lit, but grew up in New Jersey. My dad was born in Philly. I was born in Philly. His family was from Philly. So there wasn't a lot of like, I remember one of the first days being on campus and there was this guy who had the thickest, most cartoonish Texan accent. And I was just, I could not stop laughing. <laughs> Because if you're never exposed to people from other places, you're like, are you I had no real? Idea. Is this I had, real? I had no, <laughs> I had no idea what was happening there. And but I will say this is that I thought I was smart, 
you know? Like, I thought I was like kind of, you know, my I was in the top-ish of my class, but like, it wasn't really for max effort, let's say. Right. You're doing really well with not a lot of effort. Yeah. I yep. kind of just let some things slide because I didn't really feel like dealing with them. But I met people that are really smart. <laughs> there were published authors in my class who had already like written books. There next, were, like ne- so this is like next level intellect. It was, yeah. It was, I mean, it was a, I wonder sometimes how different I would be as a person if I had continued to be in small ponds where I felt like a big fish, as opposed to going there and learning what real genius people, I mean, I'm not saying everyone there was a genius by any stretch. I was, there were definitely a lot of people who were just But there was rich a higher, per, right, a higher percentage of- But there were a few people that I met who were the first people that I was just absolutely amazed by. I mean, I had a couple friends in math classes that were just like- Yeah just brilliant. What do you think? And that, that was positive though, versus Absolutely. always being kind of, okay. Cause it, it's, it shows you that it probably pushes you to grow and to learn. Yeah. I think a couple of things. One is it made it so that I was less intimidated moving forward by people who may otherwise have, because like a lot of people sort of, uh, sort of flex, like they're impressive. And they're smart. This feels like a segue into being a lawyer, big lots. A little bit of that. A little bit of that. We're going to get to that. (laughs) But a lot of people, but a lot of people, a lot of people try and intimidate and they try to not be challenged. And that's really, that was something that really learning that there are people who you will obviously and immediately recognize as, oh crap, like this person is like a genius. This person is a genius. I was a mechanical engineer because again, going to work at a car company at the time. And, you know, I had some classmates who like understood physics as a 19 year old at a level that I don't think any of my high school teachers even begin to understand. Mm-hmm. Right. So like, here's my classmate with more already with armed with more intellect and knowledge of physics and math than anyone that I'd encountered, teacher or otherwise. How do you, well, I'm trying to think of the right question, but how do you, instead of, how do you not get super intimidated and sort of shrink in the face of that? Like, what was your response? Like, I, wow, this person's a genius. I'm just going to keep doing my best. Or how do you stay motivated, I guess, maybe is the right question. I mean, I don't know if it was super motivating because I definitely, there's a bit of like, yeah, I'm not competing with this person. There's no way. I got Stephen Hawking over Hawkins over here. I didn't have the sort of skill set of hard work and studying and like really buckling down because the school that I went to for high school and middle school, like didn't have to. Didn't require yeah, it wasn't so necessary. I didn't ha I had not been honing that skill and I didn't realize that other people were at some like you know, Thomas Jefferson in Virginia as a public school, but then also just a bunch of private schools. Like, I didn't realize that there were places where I probably would have, like, I definitely would have had to work way harder at that level. And I didn't think there was, I was like, oh, I'm in this AP class. All these AP class people are the same. They learn the same things. They do not. Public school AP class in my school was clearly not teaching the same thing as what some of these other kids were learning. So it definitely was intimidating a little bit, but it also was freeing in a way because I could just kind of do my own thing and 
not really worry about like being the best. Yeah. So you go in knowing mechanical engineering is what you want to focus on. It sounds like you do that. Mm-hmm. You know, knowing that you go on to be an IP lawyer, I'm assuming you graduate with that with that degree. So where does law school? And actually, I'm going a little bit too fast, I think, because also you touched on this before, but you're also a black student at Princeton. Yeah. And I know, I think you told me at some point you were actually the president of the black. The black men's the, group. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about that a little bit. So you show up to campus and there are two things happening. One was there was a program called FSI, Freshman Scholars Institute or something. And it was a program that was before school started where a lot of the, if you were the first person from your high school to go to Princeton, or if you were someone, if you were an athlete who maybe wasn't academically sort of at the top of the the bracket to be a Princeton. You you were there for the summer. They would invite you to come in early to sort of get a credit or two under your belt, get a little acclimated, whatever, get a head start, which I think, you know, at the time I didn't really appreciate the value of it, but I think I have a much better appreciation now, but I wasn't invited to that. So when you get there, all of these black people know each other other already. They've, they've like bonded over this like two week or whatever situation. And so, you know, you come in and you're trying trying to figure it out, but the black community was already kind of galvanized behind this. You know, we were all here. We were all, not all, but. Well, but that two weeks is a long time together in that sort of setting. And also they, they're they by themselves. Usually. Yeah, it was they're, a small You kind of have the run of the school. I, and a friend of mine, um, Michelle Silverthorne, who I've actually had on the podcast, mm-hmm. she went to Princeton. I don't know if she spoke about this on the podcast, but she's spoken about this experience as well. So she was maybe like mm-hmm. three years ahead of you okay. at Princeton. Um, and my college actually did something similar. And I was invited because there were extra spots. Mm-hmm. But there was a component of, like, is this someone we think will really benefit from acclimating? Right. And I ended up going because I was like, yay, it's free. I don't have to be at home all summer. But, I, it, yeah, you really bond with the people that you're with. So you yeah. show up. Everybody knows each other. Yeah. And, and fortunately, one of my high school classmates was actually also at Princeton because he was a football player. And so he was at the FSI. Um, and so that was, he was a good person to, to know a little bit, but, but yeah, in general, it was, the funny thing is most of my friends in college were black. There weren't a ton of us, but when you show up at a new place and I felt socioeconomically different, I felt racially different, I felt sort of, and, and to Princeton's credit, there are, there are not a ton of status identifiers in a way that some schools have. So everyone lives on campus all four years. There are no rich kids with fancy apartments. You don't really drive. The parking lot was like a mile down the, down the bottom of campus. So people had really, I walked in the parking lot and there were some really nice cars there but we weren't driving around every day. So I didn't know whose they were. We weren't dressing up for classes. We weren't, so it, it wasn't really that much of an in-your-face situation, but I definitely felt it, whether it was real or not in every case, because I just kind of like was very intimidated by the wealth. Yeah, absolutely. My roommate was a soccer player and one of his friends that we did, you know, went over to hang out at one of his, his teammates' dorms or whatever. And there was a guy there and, and they kept calling, they kept like, you know, they're just talking, oh yeah, like so-and-so, so-and-so. And then as we're leaving, 
somebody like kind of leans over and goes like, you know, that's Rockefeller, right? You know, wow. like we were, we were in Rockefeller college and that was a Rockefeller. Like there's just stuff like that where I don't even know to what direct connection that was, but that's, was like, wait a second, what? Like, well, and, there, but there, and there's something to that exposure to that level, like you said, of wealth, particularly when we're back to the, like the group in Philly. And I had a similar experience in college. I mean, I went to American University, which is not mm. not you know caliber of Princeton, but there was a lot of international students Absolutely. there, and it blew my it blew my mind that some people their parents could just write a check for this experience. Mm-hmm. And you know that was this is going to sound so lame, but I grew up in Wisconsin. I didn't really know people from New Jersey. Like this whole. Like this whole Pennsylvania, New Jersey, New York contingent of human beings. I'd never been exposed to it in my life. Just like someone would look at me and be like, people live in Wisconsin? Yeah, like, what I, honestly, are you that's what I was about? just thinking. I was like, I was like, I'm trying to imagine if I, I'm trying to imagine what I would have done if I encountered straight out of Wisconsin, Alexis in college. Right. It's just, but there's all of these things and it's, and in so, so many ways it's great because it's expanding your mind and you're seeing at still a young age, cause you're 18, you're 19, these echelons and especially these echelons of society you haven't been exposed to before. But for someone who didn't grow up in that, it can be jarring. Yeah. Just be like, this is so different from my frame of reference. It was pretty intimidating. But what, what you do in those situations when you show up in these places is there was a lot of outreach from the black community. And also that was an obvious sort of visual way to sort of walk into a room and see where you need to sit, you know? And I don't think that's necessarily ideal, but I think that's what people do. That was the reality. I think that. So wait, how do you close the gap from not, you know, you missed the two week thing, but at some point was it sophomore or junior year, you were president of the black men. Oh, I was immediately, I mean, that's the thing is like the first people and organizations that I dealt with were the Black Student Union, the National Society of Black Engineers. Like there were some people there that really like reached out. The Black men's group that I ended up sort of presenting for two years, um, the current leadership of that when I was a freshman, they were extremely helpful. They reached out to us. They like helped us get the lay of the land. Like that organization was like very like very helpful to a to someone who you know didn't really know what they were doing at the time. So, yeah, and that's the thing. So a lot of my friends from Princeton are black, even though obviously like Princeton it's wasn't a, a black yeah it's institution white institution yes. But that was a good home base, and I really a lot of those relationships you know have remained really important to me. Also, I see seeds being planted for the role you're working on now and the importance of community and helping to navigate a space that may otherwise not be sort of, you know, a space where you look around and see folks like yourself, but we'll talk about that no, in a absolutely. moment. absolutely. I mean, I, I decided to, so I had, I had the advantage of, because I had taken AP classes in high school, you couldn't get credit for it, but you could place out of mm-hmm. requirements, Yep. which to be very fair, placing out of some calculus from my AP calculus was not, I didn't know it. I just had the credential to escape it. If I had to have done that, I probably wouldn't have been an engineer. That's really interesting. I did not, like the math 103 class that everyone took that I got to skip, like I saw what they were working on. And I was like, I don't know that stuff. Could not do that, but don't have to take it. Got it. <laughs> placing out of those requirements gave me some extra electives in my schedule. And so I minored in African-American studies. 
So I was able to take classes with like Cornell West, oh, wow. Eddie Glaude, um, just a lot of great people. And that was a part of the community. That's something that a lot of us took those classes, even if we didn't minor in it. That's an amazing opportunity. And I could talk to you about just your college experience all day, but I got to get you to law school, yeah. into your practice and out of your practice mm-hmm. before we finish this That's, podcast. Yeah. So you didn't become an, you didn't go to a car company as an engineer. I did. Not that I know. Or you did. So okay, here's what happened. What happens? Yeah. In college, the summer before senior year, speaking of hilarious sort of people that were at my school, the current CEO the, not the current CEO, but at the time CEO of Ford, his daughter was at Princeton in my class. Wow. So we had a little Princeton connection. And so we, a couple of us, um, myself, my friend Joe Franken, Al Franken's son, another one of our engineering classmates, we got internships at Ford. And we went out and lived in Detroit for the summer before senior year. That's a whole different experience. That's a whole different story. But had a great time, but I was like, oh, actually, this was really fun. I had a great time. I learned, I did fun things, but I looked at what like the career path sort of thing was like. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh yeah, maybe I don't want to do this. So then I come back Mm -hmm. to school and I'm like, I need to figure out plan B fast. So I actually took a patent law class from a visiting professor. I think she was at, I think she was visiting from like Michigan or something. She was teaching a patent law class and a bunch of our engineering class took it and she offered to like talk to us about it. And, you know, I went to lunch with her one time and she was like, oh, the patent office is hiring like crazy. You'd be easy to get in there. You can go there, work there for a couple of years, go to law school, like be a patent lawyer. Like you got this. This is easy. So I ended up doing that. So after college, I did go to the patent office for a couple of years and before going to law school. But that was my that was my shift from engineering at the car company, which was like a real possibility that I was like, actually, you know what? I don't think I want to do that. So that's the the pivot. And whenever I talk to IP lawyers, I'm always fascinated as to how they find out about this career path, because it's it's just harder. It's not you don't grow up being like knowing that IP lawyers exist. At least most most people don't. So that was the somewhat, I guess, fortuitous. Yeah, a little bit fortuitous. You could take this class. Every patent attorney with a technical background has some story of some place where they were staring down the barrel of a career in their field and they decided to go the other way. That's exactly right. And by the way, this podcast bears that out because I've spoken to a number of patent attorneys and that is exactly it's right. One of the best ways to bond as a group of patent attorneys is to get together and say, so when did you give up on science? Being a, yeah, oh no. Well, and I have to ask and give us a little bit of an explanation of what a patent agent is and all that. I've had a few others in the show go over that, but it's been a few episodes. And for some reason, not everyone listens to every episode of this, which is I can't this podcast, imagine why. Which is so weird. Can't imagine but why. tell me, what what is a patent agent? And it sounds like you sat for the patent bar before you came in. Like, tell me all about that. You can be a patent agent without going to law school. You just need the credential. You need a technical background to be able to sit for a test that the patent office issues. And you can pass that and you can be a patent agent. Patent agents can do everything that patent lawyers can do when it comes to the patent office and practice before the patent office. You can't do things in court. You can't do a lot of other things. But as far as prosecuting patents and things like that, pretty much can do that without a law degree. 
I was actually working as a patent examiner while I was getting ready for law school. And so because they were training us on the rules, they basically prepared us for this patent bar. And while I was getting ready, as I was winding down at the patent office, I just registered for and took the patent bar on my way out. So, you know, we've talked about this before, but like my registration number, my patent registration number is much lower than most of my peers because I was a 2012 law grad, but my I got my patent bar registration in 2008 or 2009. Right. So that you did it your senior year of college. Mm-hmm. This was while I was working after. at the patent office. Oh, got it. They you were training working, us. You, right? They're training you. Then you take it. And you, you basically take it. that got training it. and you go, okay, great. I'll take this test and get this credential so that I don't have to work here. But yeah, so so that's kind of how that process goes. And then went to law school. Considered going to law school part time. Um, and working as a patent agent, which is something that a lot of people. um, And can I ask the dumb question, (laughs) which is because I know the answer, but listeners might not know the answer, which is what are you doing as a patent agent at the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office? Just uh, a couple sentences on that. Yeah. So patent examiner, patent agents are the people that work here. Patent examiners. There you go. Patent examiner. Okay. So patent examiners are basically getting the applications from applicants and evaluating them. So we do prior art searches, we review the claim language, we review, look for sort of issues with that. So we are the sort of government counterpart to the the agents that are here and the patent attorneys that are here. And you're seeing if this is something that can be patented. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So at some point, and you did that for a couple of years, I think you said? Yeah, for two years, yeah. And then you start that law school yeah. Application process. And I did what the same like? I did the same thing with the LSAT I uh with that I did with SAT, which is I did I didn't have money to pay like these prep classes were like three grand. I didn't have any yeah, money. Really expensive. When I started working in the patent office, I had zero money. So I just got a bunch of secondhand books and just did stuff. Now again back to the went back to borders. I don't exactly. those did still those still I wasn't exist. there. I wasn't doing that at that point, but I did have a couple I did have a couple people who had like old books that they weren't using and practice tests and stuff. And I would just do that. It was good enough, right? It was good enough. But after I took that LSAT, after I had applied to school and knew I was going to school, I was looking to make some extra money in like 2008, 2009, early 2009. And so I signed up to teach LSAT classes. And in the process of learning to teach the classes, I learned some of the easy ways to do what I was doing with just, I was looking at every logic game and I was just, everyone was new. I was drawing different pictures for all the games. I had no idea that there was some common strategy. And then I start to learn how to teach it. And they're like, yeah, so when you see this type of game, you make this type of diagram. And I was like, oh, Oh. this would have been so helpful. Because after teaching the class for a couple couple times through, I took a practice test at one point, which not not valid because of multiple reasons. I'd probably seen at least some of those questions because there were very few LSAT questions, whatever. But like, I didn't get anything wrong on it when I took it after teaching it. But when I was like brute forcing my way through it, you know, I did okay, but not not 180. So that's why I say, don't do what I did. Don't just skate on it. Like take the classes. It's worth it. Yes. So you stuck by the score you had from when you... Yeah. So I didn't retake it. I was already going to UVA at that point. 
And did you know, was there any particular reason you picked UVA? Did you apply to a bunch of places? What was that like? I did not want to go to UVA so much. I, and by the way, for those who aren't, who don't know, UVA is the University of Virginia. I did not want to go there at all whatsoever. I got into, I, I got waitlisted at Columbia, got into Penn, did not get into Harvard, did not get into Yale. And I, like Columbia eventually let me in off the wait list and they, but they had no financial aid, no, no scholarship, no nothing. So I wasn't going to be able to pay like 65 grand or whatever it was. Penn had some financial aid, but like it wasn't a ton, but it was like a good amount for Penn. They don't have the mm -hmm. same aid thing, but UVA. And so I was going to go to Penn. Like I had already started, I'd already like started looking for apartments. Like I was going to go to Penn. That was the best deal. And then like, I get a letter from UVA that's like, hey, we're giving you this scholarship. And it was full tuition scholarship. And I was like, oh, no. I guess I'm going to UVA. I literally got the letter. I got the letter. And um, I was home. I think it was like over Christmas break or something. I was home. And I remember like I got this letter and I get in my car and I drive over to Penn like 15 20 minutes away i drive over to penn when they were open for whatever and i like went to the financial aid office with my uva letter in hand and was like please please Can do not make it? me please do not make me go to the south please do not make me go <laughs> to like middle of nowhere virginia um and they like really tried we went back and forth for a couple weeks they like as people were turning down aid they were like they were like, we found five grand more in this yeah, here's person. Five, like, here's 10. They really, yeah, really but... tried. And I just was like, at the end of the day, the best, the best sort of package each one had, Penn would have cost me about 80 grand more. And I just, at that point, I just had no money. My parents had no money. A, I had no. Right, and UVA is a really good and law so school. I was like, so it doesn't right, make sense to. All right. I got to go to UVA. Um, which by the way, to just jump ahead, like, I had a good time at UVA. Yeah, I don't, I definitely don't regret it. But looking at it in advance, I was like, this is just a bunch of white people in the South. I drove down there to visit a friend who was going, who was going there um, before I even thought I was going there. And I'm driving down Route 29, which is how you get to Charlottesville from DC. And I'm seeing Confederate flags. Yes. And I'm seeing like, all kinds of stuff that just... Well, the history and UVA, it was at Jefferson. Mm-hmm. Who helped? Yeah. So I remember going down to UVA when I was an American so we could see because we were studying Thomas mm -hmm. Jefferson and there's a lot of talk about the pride and the craftsmanship for the slaves who helped build all, you know, who mm -hmm. helped, who had to, who mm -hmm. were forced to build. So there's a lot of history. Yeah. And, and being <laughs> from the North. So like everyone from the South was like Virginia is the most, you know, UVA is the is like it's like this this liberal institution all my all people from florida and georgia and whatever but like i'm coming from philly so like this is the south this for me field. yeah yeah i think most people would say it's not the south uh, but for me i wanted the i didn't want the i didn't want the rural virginia i understand and obviously we've seen in the in the years that followed like charlottesville itself is a great city um liberal place diverse place Lots of great things going for it, but it is in the middle of, as we know from the Charlottesville protests, like it's in the middle of a group of people that are not that. 
yeah, not that way. So what was your, give me a few sentences because I have a few thing, more things I want to cover in Sarah last, I don't know, 20-ish or so minutes together. But what was the transition to law school like for you? Um, it was it was actually not that bad. Working in between was helpful in a lot of ways and not helpful in some ways. I kind of had fallen out of the like school habits, which some of the people that were my classmates were like straight through and they were just rolling from school to school. But I do think that having worked for a couple of years was really helpful in feeling like I was making a conscious choice. Like I had, I had a life going and I decided to come here. So I had a little bit more of a feeling of like, I chose this and this is something that I'm like going out of my way to do as opposed to, oh, I graduated and needed something else to do. Yes, exactly. So for you, it's interesting because you practiced as an IP lawyer, I think for around a decade. Mm -hmm. And now that you're not practicing anymore, I don't want to spend too much time on that, but we have to talk a little bit about it. So talk to me about how you find that job out of law school and, and I don't know, give, give some summaries about the years you practiced and we'll see where sure. we go from there. So the campus, we called it OGI because at, at UVA, it's grounds, not campus. But the on-campus process, on-grounds process was as it is for everyone else. And you do your callbacks and you get your offers this summer and you kind of like make your decisions based off of literally nothing. I had no idea what the difference was between any of these firms. Which, by the way, just stress that for law students, that's normal. That's how most lawyers were. They sound or are. You just, when they were doing this, it just sounds like names of random firms of, they could, I don't know, they could be fraternities and sororities for all. Like, I don't know. You look at the silliest things. You look at, like, I had a spreadsheet where I had, like, all of the various rankings that I had available to me. So, like, now rankings and you know whatever else and like best place for diversity and best whatever whatever and so i had like the spreadsheet of like which place was which and then i would look at the website and i'd see like whatever but i had no idea what it was like to work at any of these places and you have to make this decision that like is a huge decision um with limited information but i think and you're scrolling the website they haven't updated for two and a half years yeah yeah So that was like a very, that was like a very interesting process. I don't, I think I would, if I had to do over again, I think I, with information that I have now, I think I would be able to make a better decision, but I don't think that I made a poor decision at the time. I just think that like the process itself does not encourage people or does not give people the tools to really make a Mm -hmm. great decision. Well, and so where did you go? Where, where did you, what firm and did you move or how did that work for you? Yeah. So I decided to summer at Finnegan in DC, basically on the reasoning of like, if I'm going to do patent stuff, like if I'm going to do patent stuff, I got to go to the best place to do patent stuff. And I mean, I, I still say this, like Finnegan is still one of the you know, preeminent patent law firms and patent law practices, even uh, not even just not even just boutiques, but practices. And the training there was excellent. And like, but when I got there after law school, the litigation work that I had gone there to do had like kind of dried up for a while. And so I ended up getting pushed to do like other stuff. So I was doing sort of bulk commodity patent prosecution for like a big client and i intentionally did not go to other firms because they were going to make me do that and i just did not want to do that so that's when i was sort of like all right this isn't what i signed up for 
you know, this isn't really, this isn't really working out great. And so, but I was like, I was a first year. I had no idea of like, what do I do? Do I ride this out? You know, what do I do? And I got some good advice from one of my colleagues um, who at the time was a senior associate up in the partner era, up in the, up in the partner sort of situation. And he was hitting, this is another black, black associate, and he was hitting some barriers and he was, and he was being told that he didn't have certain skills that he didn't know he was supposed to have. He was crushing his work. Everyone liked working with him, but like he hadn't done enough business development stuff or he hadn't gone on enough, whatever. And so we had lunch one day and he was basically like, and I was telling him how things were going. And I was like, yeah, I think I'm just gonna, gonna try to ride it out as best I can. And like, see if, see if I can transition away from this work into litigation when it comes back. And he was kind of like, you can do that, but also you have to take care of yourself because they might just leave you doing this. Like they, they might, they have no, they don't really care if you're doing what you want to do. They just care if you're doing work and they're not necessarily invested in giving you the skills you want or the skills you need. Well, and that skill development early on as a lawyer, that's what, that's what you have. I I said that to so many people, you need to go to a firm that's going to develop you as a lawyer. And it's really hard to know because when I was a summer, they were so slammed with litigation. They were like, you are going to be litigating intensely immediately. Yep. Like, and by the way, that's just the realities of the economy and the market. Sure. And so there are there are times where as lawyers, you could be 10 years in your career and guess what? A legislative change means what you just did for the last decade has gone down. Absolutely. So there's there's a lot of things outside of your control, but you you're you're explaining how you also need to be smart and really navigate and take control of your career to the extent you can. I ended up working with a recruiter who I had been I had met playing basketball and he was I was like, you know, like I'm not like let's see what we can do. And you know, went on some interviews and looked at some places and I was kind of disillusioned with big law in general and I decided that I was like, all right, I'm going to give this one, I'm going to give this another chance before I try to do something else. And that's when I went to Troutman in Atlanta. Um, Mm -hmm. And I did that because I just really, really liked and trusted the people that I had interviewed with. I actually interviewed there. I can admit this now. I think the statute of limitations has run. Um, I had an interview at another firm and that's what took me to Atlanta. But the only reason I took that interview to go to Atlanta is because I had some friends in Atlanta and I wanted to see them. So I was like, (laughs) I'll take a free trip to Atlanta and do this interview. I had no intention of working at that firm. Probably won't like this firm. I figured I'd give it a shot, but I I was really like, I don't think I'm moving to Atlanta. And then while I was there, my recruiter said, Hey, while you're there, some firms that weren't, you know, weren't going to fly you down, but like there are some firms that while you're there, be easy to get an interview. So I was like, sure. So that's when I interviewed with Troutman and I just immediately felt like these people were people that I could work with. I trust them. Like I'll plug the group leader who was the group leader at the time, Ryan Schneider, just one of the best people, um, straight shooter, really invested in, in, in the group and the department and the attorneys taught me a ton. So that's where I started after I, that's where I lateral yep. to. And then were you able to do that litigation work? Yes. So I did. I, yes. So I was able to pretty quickly get ramped up on some litigations. Um, I did some pharmaceutical litigation for, I went to trial like three times in four years. And that's a lot. 
Yeah, and got to really dig in on that and did this pharmaceutical litigation for, you know, forever. And then I know eventually you did lateral back to the So the I DC transferred area? back to their DC office. So Got it. I was in Atlanta, my lease was coming up. I'd been there for a year and a half and I was like, ah, I don't really love Atlanta. That was a tough that was a tough year in Atlanta. Both of my mom's parents yeah. passed. That was the furthest I'd been from home. And so I kind of went into Ryan's office and I was like, I know this is a long shot. I know I'm a third year associate, but like, could I work out of our DC office? We didn't have any patent people there. And and I was thinking he was going to say, you know, ask again in a year, ask again in two years. But he said, but he was like, yeah. And I was like, oh crap, I have to do this now. So I, I did, I scrambled and like moved up there and I worked most of my I was at Troutman for seven years. I think most of those years, five of those years, five plus of those years were in DC working sort of unsupervised. Which by unsupervised, which by the pulling the tidbit out of that, I think particularly as associates, it can be really hard knowing how to navigate stuff like that. But we have times here at here at Foley, and I've seen this at other firms where I've worked where someone will go to another firm and you find out it's because I don't know, they wanted a different practice focus or they had this fam- family thing going on. And you're like, wow, if they had raised it, like we could have we could have made that work too. Mm-hmm. But sometimes and it's really hard to know. So to any associates at other firms listening to this, I'm not saying tell everyone you're everything, but you actually may be surprised as to how the firm works to accommodate. We certainly at Foley do work to accommodate folks. I would say generally the way I crystallize that is if you're ready to go, right? If you're ready to actually leave because you want to do something else, you want to be in a different place. Once you've What's decided that, you might as well see What's if they the can accommodate, accommodate you because yes. they might say yes. I actually, in that situation, I I was planning to just stay in Atlanta. Like I wasn't, it wasn't a threat. Like, I wasn't like, hey, you got to let me do this or I'm leaving. But if I was definitely needing to leave Atlanta, like, you ask them. Well, and then also at Troutman Sanders, this is where you start. It sounds to me like you took on another job, which is you did a lot of DEI-related work and affinity group work. So Mm -hmm. could you speak a little bit to that? Yeah. So I got on the diversity committee sort of as soon as we were eligible um, to do that. And I worked a lot with the recruiting people there. Still, still good friends. Still, still chat with them. The recruiting people there, and I just kind of started to see behind the scenes how, like, the recruiting process works and how the attorney development process works, and started to realize, like, oh, there's some, there's some gaps here. There are some things that people just don't have the experience to understand. Like, they want to recruit more underrepresented candidates. They want to, they want to do it, but they don't know how. So they're like, yep. let's pay more, let's do this, let's do that. And like, sure, but part of it is just having people stay, like retaining people so that when you're looking All at a candidate and you say, oh, like, do you have anyone else here who, who looks like me who succeeded? And a lot of firms don't. And so that really sort of started me down that path of like, let me try to help out here as much as possible. So I did some like interviewing stuff and some you know, summer associate stuff. And eventually we only had one person in our diversity team and and she wore a bunch of different hats. She was like the director of a bunch of things, including diversity. At one point, sort of a few years into me being on the diversity committee and stuff like that, um, she was retiring and they did not have a replacement ready for her. And so there was a period where there was just like 
no one except a partner who was like the diversity partner. Yep. So it becomes a little more grassroots at yeah, that point. But that was yeah. like an opportunity because they needed help. And so that was when I helped get the affinity groups off the ground. We started with the Black Attorneys Affinity Group, and then I chaired that. And then we sort of use that to like pilot some of the other ones. These groups had existed in some form or another, but they were mm-hmm. extremely informal. And what would happen is, and you're familiar with this, someone would be running with it and then they, they would leave. Else. And then Momentum's there would be gone. six months to a year of no one doing anything. And then someone would think about it again and say, hey, we haven't, I have, we haven't done anything. So yes. we formalized it. Which by- by the way, I have to pull out the nugget of wisdom from this too, which is that that is great. We want a charismatic, energetic people. But if you build DEI programs around a personality or charisma, and it can be, it's a little different with affinity groups, admittedly, when that person leaves. And so that's why a lot of it also has to be the institutionalizing, the, the systematizing Absolutely. so that nothing's just around this one, this one person. That's part of why like, I think the way to, and again, jumping slightly ahead, but like the way to grow those programs is as slowly and stably and organically as possible. Because if you are an energetic person and you're like, I want to lead this group and I want to do a bunch of things, that might be great. But when you leave, if no one's there to pick them up, the whole group can fall apart. Yes. So having some like very core, you know, underpinnings, having a good foundation. Yes, which by the way, it makes, it makes me laugh because I am obviously, I I want everybody who wants to fo- focus on DEI to do it, but I will come in and sometimes slow folks down mm-hmm. and be like, this is amazing. Thank you. Thank you. But I also need your energy 18 months from now right. or four years from now. So you have 73 ideas and that is great. And I'll, I'll joke that I feel like I'm like the Debbie Downer of DEI oh, sometimes who comes in and is like, that's cool. Let's take it back 12 notches so that we could still do this in three years. Absolutely. I mean, that's the thing is like, uh, even as a pra- even as a patent attorney, like sometimes, sometimes you're talking to an engineer who's really excited about this thing and you're basically like, yeah, that's not going to, you're not going to get that. Yeah, that's not going to work And that's the same like thing that. here. It's like, sometimes you just have to be the Debbie Downer and you have to say, look, I want that to happen, but we're not there yet. And if we do that yep. now, that puts other things at risk. And like, it's really hard and really complicated. And it's really hard to say no. That long-term focus. Well, and I know that the, our show, this show's going to run a little bit long. So hopefully listeners stick, stick with us. But I'm going to fast forward to the end of your career, mm. not end, your transition <laughs> yeah. to this work, to the end of your professional career. Yeah. I'm just but I know you eventually do lateral to a boutique mm-hmm. firm in D.C., mm-hmm. And spends, I don't know, it was like a couple of years, year and a half or so Yeah, there. So, so what happened was pandemics hits. A lot of my litigation team had like one partner retired who was like a mentor. Things change. One mentor, yeah, changes. one mentor himself went to another firm. A senior associate that I had really learned a lot from and grew, grew under left. And so I was the litigation part was just not, not happening again. And it was pandemic and like, I just, you know, I was like, all right, well, if I'm going to just to do prosecution and counseling, um, which is basically what was kind of happening, I was like, I don't need to do it here, Here, um, yeah. working unsupervised, working by myself in, in this office. And so I joined up with some of my colleagues from Finnegan who had in the years in between started their own um, boutique in DC. And so I kind of joined them and I was working with them for a couple years. Um, and there I also, they had just started their diversity 
committee when I started. So I helped I helped out with that too and co-chaired that with so another attorney of, there. So I, a lot of DEI work there. Yeah, and it was really fun. I had a lot of support. It legitimately is a great place to work and the partnership is super supportive. They gave us a lot of time and resources and backing to grow mm-hmm. some of this stuff out. And um, it was just a really great experience. But as I was doing it, I was thinking increasingly like, I just need to do this. I could do this. People get paid to do this work yeah. full time, minus minus having to bill for anything. Right. Turns out. Yeah. And billing is not <laughs> billing is not my favorite. It's it is one of the more challenging parts of being a law firm attorney. I think I think that's right. I think idiosyncratically for me too, because the way my brain works is just slightly different than I think some of my friends when it comes to time and how you look at time. And mm-hmm. billing just made me feel like all hours of the day and night and weekend and holiday, every hour of the year was fungible. And it was like, so you're turn, yeah, it kind of I could work at any point. I, I just could never enjoy looming. not working because I was like, ah, I could be working. I could be billing right now. Sure. Hey, nothing wrong with that mindset when you are practicing. But it's just, it's funny to me because people who've listened to the show before also know like Foley has a really large and well-established IP department. Mm-hmm to the tune of a couple couple hundred people in it. And so it's been really fun for me in these last few months to be like, we filled our manager role <laughs> and he is for he's a mechanical engineer who spent a decade as an IP lawyer and yes, did a ton of diversity inclusion on this on the side. But I've joked with you how I know here at Foley, it's like, are we sure we can't get Dan to bill a little bit <laughs> because he can do the litigation and the prosecution? <laughs> um, but for me, what really stood out when it came to you know us knowing we wanted to add to our team was the fact that you'd done so much of this work already. And I know we're not going to have a ton of time to go into the ins and outs of it. So maybe Mm -hmm. we need to do a part two at some point. But really the vision here was we wanted more support for affinity groups. And that's something you were already doing in your spare time. Also, we've adopted a new strategic plan and can definitely use the assistance in rolling out some of the really neat parts of that, which include some you know higher level data analytics and information out to the firm. And we're doing some stuff when it comes to kind of reinvigorating our own diversity and inclusion committee. And I'm looking at all these people who've applied and I was like, well, this person's done that, <laughs> all of this before to some extent. And he knows what it's like to work in a large law firm. So when it comes to that building relationships with our lawyers, and for many of them, having practice longer than they have and really giving them good advice, you check all of those boxes. So this is my way of just bragging and being like, I'm so excited (laughs) you're here. And also they say when you hire to hire people that are smarter than you are. And I know, and I know I've done that. So I'm patting myself on the back. I don't know about all that, but um, because I had, because as you know, I had been following you on LinkedIn, not even for looking for a job, but for, you know, a couple of years, just because I appreciated your insights on diversity at law firms and definitely used some of your, some of your stuff in my programming that I was doing, uh, Oh, that's other great. Firms. That's great. So <laughs> well, and, uh, what's really fun for me also is, and I don't I don't know what people's impressions are when you look at, you know, large law firms, particularly when it comes to the DEI space, but as diversity professionals, we really support each other. So mm-hmm. I know most of the diversity yeah. professionals at the other, you know, AMLAW 50, AMLAW 100 firms. And it was actually, you know, like, shout out to, to Darwin mm-hmm. at um, Eversheds. I know he connected 
us in particular, but that's what we do because the bottom line is, yes, we want everyone to work at Foley, obviously, <laughs> but we don't have room for sure. everyone to work here. So I hope there are a lot of great places that are really supportive and conducive to supporting, you know, underrepresented lawyers, but everyone else. So there really I, is this collegiality yeah. amongst I us. I was eyeing these types of positions for like three years before I, I actually started and probably a year and a half or two years before I even started applying to any of them. And I just was building networks. So there were so there were just many people. I just was reaching out to anyone I had a connection with. My friends were like, oh, here, let me set up a call for you with our diversity director. Oh, here, let me, let me get coffee with this person, let me whatever. So I had already been building this network a little bit. And Darwin is just another example of a person who I interviewed with Darwin. He was like, hey, really like you our job that we're needing is like a different situation, but we're going to, I'm going to help you out. And he for months was passing along job postings and offering to put me in touch with people. And I mean, it's just such a, such an over the top. He definitely did me a solid. I I owe him lunch. So if Darren ever (laughs) listens to this, he can, he can let me know when he's next in Chicago. But I really like that part of the community in the sense that the diversity professionals in law firms, especially know each other, work with each other, help each other out, and also just feel like he didn't owe me anything. Like there are multiple people who I had coffee with and I bugged multiple times and had hour long phone calls with. They didn't owe me any. I didn't wasn't working at their firm. Right. Like you I just, it was it was not I wasn't help you folks. know and well, but and that's what's so fun about this community and for you to be now an official member of it. And for those who don't know, there's also an organization called the Association of Law Firm Diversity Professionals, which is one of the ways we all get to know one another. But when people will say, well, are you aware of what this firm is doing or that firm is doing? I'm like, yes. And I, I actually helped their director through the interview process <laughs> or their manager right. or whatever. Right. It's like, you you would be surprised. Um, but Dan, in our last few minutes, uh, one thing I know, we will have to have a part two because at some point we can get on here and talk about the specifics of what we have going on. And maybe when we do that, maybe we pull in Eileen Ridley, our chief diversity partner. Maybe we pull in Jen Patton, our chief talent officer. I don't know, but that needs to happen. But ultimately this show is listened to by, you know, a lot of law students or those early in their career. And given that at this point, you have still spent way more time (laughs) as a practicing attorney than as a dedicated DEI professional, I would love to, to sort of, to end with some of your overarching advice or insights, things that you wish someone had told you as you were navigating becoming a lawyer? Well, I won't even say it's necessarily things that I wish people had told me, but I guess things that I, in hindsight, was told, and luckily so. Early in my career, getting the advice of like being in charge of your own career and not allowing you, like, you cannot pop your head up three years into your legal career and realize you do not have the skills you need. And so that was something that could have easily done because I think one of the big distinctions between first-generation lawyers and underrepresented groups and people who don't have a bunch of lawyers and white-collar employees in their family is that I was used to having jobs. And like when you have a job and when your family has jobs, you show up, you do what's asked of you, you go home, and that's success. But that's not what that's not what practicing law is like. And, you know, that's something that you can kind of only figure out uh, either by having some institutional knowledge or just sort of getting some good advice and some good mentorship early on. So that's definitely one thing, keeping being in charge of your own career um, and, and doing that. Reaching out, needing, you know, having a network of people who can help, having peers and 
you know, senior associates and other people that you can sort of talk to about sort of what they can do. Not everyone has every experience. And so sometimes you're asking someone a question, they're like, I, that would be new to me too. And they may not even say that. By sure. The way. They may still just pull absolutely, some random advice. Absolutely. They're, everyone's doing their best. But having a group of people that you can sort of work with, talk to. When I started out of law school, I had a really close group of, of friends who were in my class. And we spent a lot of time helping each other out. And we didn't know, we couldn't help each other out like advancement wise, but we also kept an eye on each other as far as like, mm-hmm. you know, oh, how did you guys handle when this happened? Or, oh, how did you get that kind of work? Or, oh, you know, I saw that you went to a deposition. Like, I want to go to a deposition. Like having those communities and having that, that support system, especially in law, especially in big law firms, really important. I thought it was just for fun, but it actually was extremely important. That's- that's perfect. Both of those are really key insight. And I already, this is already happening. Dan, you're coming back and we'll do a special edition of the podcast where it's sort of, where it's the advice episode because we have first year starting soon and we should make this happen, happen soon. Yeah. So if someone's listening to this two years from now, check that out <laughs> somewhere down the line. On this one. Since, you know, realistically, uh, I've been a diversity professional for a month now. It makes sense that this podcast was mostly about not that But we're going to talk about that too. But with that, I will just say thank you so much for being game to be on the show just within your first month and a half. I did. I mean, what am I going to do? Tell my boss? No, I guess that's true. But as you know, I'm super excited for you to be here and uh, to the listeners. Thank you for getting it. Thank you for listening and learning about my new team member, Dan. And if you have questions for Dan, Dan, is it okay if they email you or reach out on LinkedIn? Absolutely. Either of those is great. I'm pretty responsive with that. Perfect. Thank you so much, Dan. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Path and the Practice. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and join us again next time. And if you did enjoy it, please share it, subscribe, and leave us a review as your feedback on the podcast is important to us. Also, please note that this podcast may be considered attorney advertising and is made available by Foley & Lardner LLP for informational purposes only. This podcast does not create an attorney-client relationship. Any opinions expressed herein do not necessarily reflect the views of Foley & Lardner, LLP, its partners, or its clients. Additionally, this podcast is not meant to convey the firm's legal position on behalf of any client, nor is it intended to convey specific legal advice. 